And you do, Father, every time we read. Bless the reading of your word. You have promised that you will never allow it to, to return to you void without accomplishing first everything that you intend for it to accomplish. It is a living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to defy, d divide between the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so, Father, we ask that you would use your word this morning to change us, to show us the glory of your Son, to show us how loved we are as your people. No, Father, this is a text we all need, but we know, Father, it's, it's needed most among our beloved brothers who are being persecuted overseas and who are losing their lives. Oh, Father, I pray that they would put all of their hope in the Good Shepherd. And we here, Father, with our relatively minor concerns compared to theirs, we can tend to be so self-centered and, and become so despairing in ourselves because we have nothing to offer ourselves, and yet you offer us yourself. You are the good shepherd. Teach us what that means. Help us to depend on you because of it and for it and all of the blessing that is ours in Christ because of your grace in this way. Lord, we love you and we pray that you administer your word to us now and be glorified in us as we listen and as we learn. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. The words we have just heard were, of course, from the Lord Jesus, who is the Good Shepherd. There are other words in the Bible, Old Testament words that are reminiscent, that kind of remind us of this when we look back. They were written by David, the ancient king of Israel, who once prayed with pen in hand and said these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And for you young people, want is just an old word that means lack. I shall not lack anything I need. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now those are the words of a man who lived in constant turmoil. He was the king. And it seems like every time David writes a psalm, he's, he writes something to this effect. God, don't let him kill me. <laughs> Preserve my life. Let the evildoer, those who want my bled, blood, be thwarted. I mean, when was the last time you prayed that? God, don't let him kill me. Maybe some of you police officers have had that experience. The rest of us, maybe not. This is where David lived. And what gave David hope and strength and encouragement and comfort was the knowledge that he was merely a sheep following the shepherd. I'm tempted somewhere in this series just to preach 
um, the 23rd Psalm again because it's so refreshing and so good. It's, um, you know, we like to say among the pastoral staff here, you need to be ready to preach, pray, or die in a minute. And it's usually not dying, uh, it's usually preaching. And we go overseas, that is the message I keep in my hip pocket, in the back of my mind. Psalm 23, go anywhere in the world and find God's people. They love this psalm, though they hardly understand it. Well, aside from John 3.16, where we are told about the amazing, the amazing love of God for the world, this is perhaps the most beloved passage in all of Scripture, Psalm 23. I mean, what greater confidence and comfort can there be for people living in troubled times than the irrevocable promise that God, because of his great compassion and incomparable love, has made himself our shepherd. That he has promises to provide for us. He's promised to provide sufficiently. He's promised to restore us when we're broken. He's promised to guide us when our circumstances are frightening and to protect us and comfort us and, and to deal with our enemies and bless us abundantly and then in the end to welcome us into his heavenly home forever. I mean, how good is that? How good is that? We love this chapter in the Old Testament and we love it even more when we learn that the shepherd that David was referring to was none other than the second person of the Trinity who we know it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And the Old Testament is full of images about God as our shepherd. God is our shepherd. God is our shepherd. For example, just a few. Genesis twenty-two fourteen. Abraham is speaking about a place, and he calls it Jehovah Roy. It's not Jehovah Jireh, but it essentially means the same thing. The Lord provides, or the Lord shepherds. The Psalm 80, verse 1. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel. When was the last time you prayed that? You want to pray for your family? Give ear, O oh Lord, O oh, shepherd of my children. Give ear, O oh Lord, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Isaiah 40, 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Do you hear tenderness, compassion, concern, love? Ezekiel 34, 23, speaking of the coming Christ, God says, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now understand, David had been dead for years by the time this was written. Who's he speaking of? A king who'd be like David after God's own heart. He would be the Christ. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And then we have kind of a corresponding metaphor. We have the shepherd metaphor. But what good is a shepherd if he doesn't have any sheep? Who are the sheep? And so in the Old Testament, we find this, Psalm 79, 13. 
So we are the people of your pasture. Psalm 95, 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Sheep in his hand. That sounds like a, a strange thing, doesn't it? The sheep in your hand. He's got his hands on his sheep all the time. He's loving them. He's caring for them. He's finding their wounds. He's finding the sore places, the places that need to be addressed and dealt with and healed and tended to. These are my sheep. And so when we come to John chapter 10 then, it should not surprise us that Jesus Christ is portrayed as the good shepherd. This is not the only occasion where Jesus thinks of himself as the shepherd. You may remember when he and his disciples in Mark 6 were crossing the Sea of Galilee for a much-needed retreat from the constant press of ministry, literally people pressing on them. Some, in some occasions in the gospel it says that people were pressing in him, on him so much they, they didn't even have time to eat and could hardly sleep because of the press of people who wanted to be near him and be restored by him and healed. And so here they were, tired from ministry, weary from all of the need. And so Jesus says, let's get in the boat. Let's go take a retreat. Let's, let's go to a lonely place and rest. Well, so they get in the boat and they go north, uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. They come to the shore where it's supposed to be abandoned. It's supposed to be a wilderness where they can get out of the boat and set up a little picnic area, I guess, and, and lay down and rest and, and, and eat and be alone for once. And just as they're coming to the shore, they notice over the hill comes this crowd of people who figured out where they were going. And how would you feel at that moment? I know when I'm tired, I'm grumpy, <laughs> and the last thing in the world I would want is a crowd of people coming and knocking on the door. And here's what Mark 6, 34 says. We read that Jesus, quote, Jesus felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They didn't have their shepherd. These were God's children. This was Israel, Israelites, who had many religious leaders. No shepherd. No shepherd. Beloved, think of God in many ways. Many biblical ways. I mean, think of him as the great king of kings and lord of lords. Think of him as the creator and judge of all the earth. Yes, think of him as a miracle worker and as the greatest teacher who ever lived. Think about Jesus that way, but think of him in this way. The Lord is my shepherd. It's your shepherd. It's different than these others, these other metaphors of him being king and creator, and judge. He's your shepherd. There, there is a tenderness and love and grace and personal, intimate concern for you that you may know very little of. This is what this passage is about. Jesus is calling a great flock of people to be shepherded by him. But he doesn't think of them is that bunch of dumb livestock. It's not the way he thinks of us. 
No, he loves his sheep. He provides for them and cares for them in very personal ways. In fact, two times, look, we're, we're in the text, right? John chapter 10. Look at verses 26 and 27. Two times here, he says this. Not the sheep, not those dumb, dirty sheep, but my sheep. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. These are my sheep. My sheep. There is ownership here. There is a sense of ownership here. Jesus lays claim to his sheep as if he is the owner of them. One of the things I learned this week in studying shepherding, sheep, is that there's a pretty significant difference between the Eastern shepherds and the Western shepherds. And when I say Western shepherds, I mean shepherds from Scotland, England, Wales, you know, the West, maybe uh, Australia, certainly New Zealand, where they have three million people and 30 million sheep. Um, there's a difference in shepherding in these two places. In the West, Shepherds are typically hired men. Somebody else owns the farm, they own the sheep, they own everything, the livestock there, and they hire someone to tend the sheep. Not so much in the East. In the East, the one who is tending the shepherd, at least usually in, in the biblical context, the one who is tending the sheep is the owner of the sheep. He has a vested interest in protecting them. He knows them, each one of them. It's amazing um, uh, when you, you meet someone who is used to dealing with wildlife or works at a zoo. You know, you look out and there's a bunch of zebra, and what do they look like? Horses with stripes, right? Every one of them, they look the same to me. And, but a person who works at the zoo will say, uh, Oh, that's, that's Jenny, that's Bubba, oh, here comes whatever. And I'm like, how in the world can you tell them apart? I've seen hunters do the same thing. They know the deer on their property. They have a lease. Uh, they know them. Why? Because they spend time with them. I mean, in their case, they want to shoot them and eat them. <laughs> but they know. Maybe that's a bad analogy here. <laughs> But in the east, they were the owners. Or, not the owner of the sheep, the son of the owner of the sheep. And in at least one case in the Old Testament, the daughter of an owner, of the owner. In any case, these are my sheep. Not somebody else's sheep that I'm looking after. I know these sheep. I know every one of them by name. I know their strengths, their weaknesses. I know what their tendencies are. Let me ask you a question. Is this your view of God? What is your view of God? When your mind wanders in the direction of what God thinks about you, what words come to mind? What images come to mind? I've counseled people for enough years now to know that some who are listening to my voice right now, either personally here or on the recording, some of you have a wrong view of God. 
some of you um, who have confidence that you're a child of God nevertheless think of God in wrong ways. You have a wrong view of God. Some of your thoughts of God, you make him out to be kind of a celestial slave master. Now, I understand there is slavery image in the Bible, imagery. In one sense, he is our master and we are his slaves. And Paul rejoiced in that. He started, I think, every letter, Paul, bondservant, which really there is no Greek word that means bondservant, and there's very little evidence that such a person even existed. The term is slave. Paul, slave of Jesus Christ. It's that imagery of not a master who is harsh on the slaves like you normally think of when you think of slavery, but rather as a slave who could be set free but doesn't want to be set free. He wants to serve his master for the rest of his life. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was provision made for the time when a slave is due to be set free because he's, he's paid his debt or he has fulfilled his obligation. And what if he doesn't want to be set free? What if he wants to stay with this master? And the law of God made provision for that. You'd go to your master and say, I've made my decision. I don't want to go. I don't want to leave you. And so they would take him to like the doorpost of the door, and they would take this thing called an awl. And you young people don't know what an awl is because we have so many power tools. But an awl is like a, um, like a, like a big um, skewer, probably about that long, with a wooden handle on it and sharp at the end. Like you, it's something you would put marshmallows on maybe, um, but, but shorter. And you would go over and, and the slave who wants to stay with his master would put his ear up against the doorpost and, and the master would drive that thing through his ear and put a ring in it. And the slave would say, yes, thank you. Because the ring is a symbol. I, by choice, have chosen to be the slave of this master because he's so good to me. And so it's a different imagery, and we put connotations on that that are wrong as well. But here the imagery is of a shepherd and his sheep. I love this. The more I study this, the more I love it. And I think in some ways, in some ways, it can be more helpful for you, maybe some of you, to think more often of your relationship with God as shepherd and sheep rather than father and son or father and daughter because I know that, that so many people in our day, so many believers came out of homes with, where their relationship with their dad just wasn't good and painful. A lot of bad stuff happened and you have a hard time thinking of God as father. Well, the good news is that's the, not the only image that God gives us. God reveals himself in a different way as well and that is as your shepherd your shepherd. I said in the early service, um, when I got out of high school, I was needing a job, raising money for college. And uh, I didn't even think I, I'm not even sure I told my children this before this morning when it occurred to me while preaching. Um, sometimes I'm not sure what I'm going to say when I get up here. But uh, one of the jobs I had right out of high school was I got, I got hired by 
I might get in trouble for this. I got hired by an animal research farm. Now, I didn't know what that was. All I knew was they were going to pay me per hour, and I was happy to have a job. So we got there, and uh, they, they, they worked on creating medi- medicines for animals and vitamins for animals and whatever. Uh, the craziest thing was they had these cows, and they all had a big patch on their side that gave direct access to their stomach, and once in a while one of them would cough, and it would blast, and that was gross. I'm not sure what that has to do with the sermon, but... Um, <laughs> my job in the morning, I'd get there early in the morning, and I was just a kid. I was a teenager, 16, 17 years old. And they put me out with the goats, and I, I kind of had a flock of goats, and I was like, oh, wow, I feel almost like a shepherd. And, uh, and it didn't take long to realize my job, I had a very important job first thing in the morning, was to go out to the goat pen, and it was big. It was a goat pasture. And my job was to wander around the goat pasture. It was a few acres, not very big. And uh, to walk the fence line. And guess what I was doing? Wasn't looking for predators. I was looking for goats that had stuck their heads through the, you know, the square mesh of the fence, got their horns on the other side, and couldn't get out. That's a bad place to be if a predator comes. I mean, they just bite your head off, literally. <laughs> And so I had to go out there every morning, and these dumb goats, I'm thinking, <laughs> and you go, and you just tenderly, you grab them, and they fight you a little bit, and you kind of push them forward, bend their horns back, slide them back through the fence, and they go running off. Sometimes they turn and they, they butt you. And, but that was my job, and I thought, wow, these animals. And then I got thinking, it's like me. I mean, who am I more like? Jesus or the goat? I mean, in all humility, I'm more like the goat than like Jesus many times. And yet the shepherd never tires of pulling us from the fence, never tires of pulling us out of the water, never tires of cleaning us up, healing our wounds, going to search for us when we get lost. Terrible about that, right? What I'm saying is some of you have the wrong view of God. It's a warped view. It's a twisted view. And so every time you mess up, you imagine an angry God planning ways to make you pay. And then when your car breaks down or you have some kind of financial or relational crisis, you think, yep, this is it. God's punishing me. I knew it was coming. I deserve this. He's making me pay for what I did. That's not God. If you're one of his children, that's not how he treats his children. He wouldn't treat a goat like that, let alone one of his sheep, one of his children. Some of you don't even wait for God to get around to punishing you. You think maybe you'll be, he'll be more lenient if you punish yourself. And so when you think you've messed up or you've done something wrong, or you've given into temptation, you've committed some sin, you just start beating yourself up before God ever gets there. I mean, as if he ever would. You think maybe God will be more lenient, and so you put yourself in in, in a gloomy mood, you put on your gloomy face, you wallow around in despair, you keep your distance from the Bible, you don't pray, you say things to yourself that you imagine God would say to you if he were there, like, you're such a loser. I mean, Why did I ever think of saving? Why did I ever think saving you was going to be a good idea? I can't believe you sinned again. What are you, stupid? 
Why can't you just obey? And beloved, can I, can I just tell you? That is blasphemous. That is not the way God thinks of you. Now understand, if those of you who have been around for any number of weeks know that we do not preach a self-esteem gospel. This is not about you thinking more highly of you. This is about you thinking correctly about God. The fact that he loves you like this isn't a reflection of you. The fact that he loves you like this is a revelation of him. He's your shepherd. And he treats you like a shepherd. Some would go so far as to think, truth be told, despite all the Bible talk about God's love and grace, he hates me. Maybe he loves other people who are more beautiful or spiritual, but not me. He could never love me. And perhaps some of you would go so far as to think that, that God hates you. Maybe not hates you. Maybe, maybe, maybe hatred in a different way. Maybe he just ignores you. Maybe you think that all, all God really does is just ignore you. I mean, if pressed, you'd have to confess that certainly God knows that you exist. Like the principal of your junior high school knew that you existed because he saw your name on the list of students. But if you crossed him, crossed paths in the hall, he wouldn't recognize you. And that's the way you think of God. He knows me. He knows my name. Yeah, that's all he knows about me. If you know anything about me, he wouldn't recognize me if he saw me. He doesn't really care about me. And that's how many people think of God. And beloved, that's not biblical. I mean, it's good that you get the Trinity right. Okay, some of our deep, rich, foundational theology, I'm so glad you get the Trinity right. I'm so glad you get the deity of Christ right. I'm so glad you get the virgin birth right. Get this right. God loves you. And he treats you tenderly, like a wonderful shepherd cares for his sheep. Against such thinking, this false kind of thinking, God has given us John chapter 10. So, we're going to spend some time on this, okay? I've been on a mission to kind of speed up my, um, my exegesis, my expounding upon the text, because, okay, I'll just be honest with you. We're in chapter 10, just getting started last week. This is sermon number 70. So I'm thinking, you know, we could speed this up and... Maybe before I retire, we'll finish the book of John. <laughs> I started studying this passage, and I thought, got to slow down. We need this. Listen, I'm one of the shepherds of this congregation, and I know these sheep. I know you. I don't know all of you like God knows you. But you know what? I've been here long enough. I've been here 20 years this year. I've been here long enough to know we need this. We need this. All of the talk about obedience, it's biblical. All the talk about submission and pursuit of holiness, it's all biblical. But if you don't understand the shepherd's loving care for you, it'll quickly turn into some heavy weight that God never intended for you to bear. So, before we get there, let's do a little overview, okay? Let's just see what this text has to say in its three parts. The first part is this, if you're, if you're taking notes. Number one, 
I see three major themes here. Number one is Jesus is gathering his flock. This is verses one and six, six one through six. We talked about this last week. This is um, where Jesus lays out this analogy um, of shepherd and sheep and other things here. And what's he, what's he doing? He's telling us, without explaining it, he's telling us something about his relationship to the sheep and why that relationship is important. But he's not giving, giving any explanation right. We don't get the explanation until verse 7. He starts explaining it. And then we can go back to verses 1 through 6 and say, okay, now we understand what he's doing. So what is he doing? He's building his flock. He's gathering his flock. So Jesus sets the stage for what he intends to communicate about his relationship with his people in verses 1 through 6. He wants us to think of ourselves as sheep and him as our shepherd. And from these verses, we begin to understand the intimate relationship the shepherd has with his sheep. Notice verse 3. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He calls them by name. There, there is so much intimate language here. Intimate in, in the sense of tender closeness where he knows you and he loves you. Not only does he know his sheep, but he gives them the privilege of knowing him back intimately as well. Look at verse 4. They know his voice. In verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. This is this relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. And I have read, I don't know this experientially, it seems fantastic to me, but this, I've heard this many, many times, that, um, so a few families will, will have, in a big sheep pen, they'll have all their sheep together. But they're separate flocks. They're all, I mean, if, if I were to walk up to the pen, I'd look and I'd just see a bunch of sheep. But the reality is, each one of them belongs to a different master, a different shepherd. And all the shepherd has to do is step into the pen and say, come on. And his sheep follow him and the rest stay. Why? Because they won't follow someone they don't know. Now, what does that mean in relation to this? I don't have a good answer for that yet, but I'm working on it. Because Jesus says it. But I think the most important part is, here is this intimacy between Jesus, the shepherd, and his people, the sheep. They know him, or at least they're invited to know him, but he knows them. He knows everything about us. There is intimacy here. There is security here. And we'll see when we think about how the shepherd protects his sheep from thieves and robbers in verse 1 and 8 and 10 and 12. And this is really a beautiful and comprehensive way of thinking about our relationship with God. In fact, if we were to fully adopt this way of thinking about how God relates to us, his people, many of our false notions of him would separate. Our prayer life would find life again, and our worship would soar. I think the reason, I think the thing that, that kills our worship and our prayers and, and other, other important aspects of our faith is, number one, sin. And number two, wrong view of God. Wrong view of how God relates to his people. So it's important. So first we see Jesus is gathering his flock. Secondly, 
beginning with verse 7 and through verse 10, Jesus explains his purpose for gathering his flock. Namely, okay, so here's the shepherd, and the whole, the whole thing we see here is giving and caring and loving and tenderly leading. What is his purpose? His stated purpose is list, namely, to give them life abundantly. Abundantly. This is that critical passage where Jesus is telling us not that we just, we don't just get eternal life, we don't get just to live forever in his presence. But there's something about that. There, there needs to be a qualifier to that kind of life. And Jesus says, here's the qualifier. How about this word? Abundance. Now, what does abundant life mean? All kinds of misconceptions about this. Um, we're not ready to talk about it yet, but let me, just, let me just put this thought in your mind. Whatever you think of as abundant life, just take money and possessions and extract it from that definition, and then you're, getting, you're starting to make some progress. It's the intangible things. And so relationship with Jesus Christ, first of all. It's knowing him intimately and knowing he knows you and loves you. It's critical. It's part of what abundant living means, and there's more. The Lord's provision for his sheep is he's abundant. And so the first thing that strikes me here, before I get to that, um, I, I just want you to know that we're going to be discovering once again, and we've talked about this before, that Jesus is no stingy Savior. He is an abundant Savior. He is glorified in providing not just minimal salvation, as if that were possible, but abundant life by means of that salvation for his own glory and for our own inexhaustible joy. And so that's number two, his purpose for gathering his flock, namely to give them abundant life. He says so in verse 10, the thief comes only uh, to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then the third um, piece to this text is, number three, Jesus explains how he will give them abundant life. So he gathers his flock. He's gathering his flock, he's telling us, for a purpose, to give them abundant life. Now, ask the question, Jesus, shepherd, how will you give your sheep abundant life? What's the means of achieving that? And the answer to that is this. By laying down my life. Pray to heaven. I'm going to lay down my life. I don't think anything got Jesus in more trouble than the statement that he makes here. I will lay down my life, and I will take it up again. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. If there was any ambiguity, if there was any misunderstanding of what Jesus thought about himself relative to him being God, um, all bets are off here. It couldn't be any plainer. I mean, how many people do you know who have the authority to both take their life and give it back to themselves. Nobody. That's craziness. That's insanity. For a normal person to think that he has the power to give himself life after he's dead. 
It only makes sense if you're God. And that's exactly who Jesus claimed to be. And the thing that first strikes me here is amazing is the fact that this is not John the Apostle telling us after the fact what Jesus did. It is Jesus before the fact prophesying what he will do. I will give my life for the sheep. How much does he love the sheep? He loves them to the end, to the giving of his own life. Here's the love of Jesus for a sheep manifest to its fullest extremity. This is no hireling herdsman. He is not getting paid to watch over someone else's sheep. These are his own precious sheep. He cares for them. He loves them. And if they are going to have abundant life, he must die for them and rise again. And so he does. This is the good shepherd who loves his sheep, who knows them each by name, who provides abundantly for his sheep, who personally leads them to green pastures and quiet waters, and who is determined to protect and preserve them by laying down his life in their place and securing their safety with his Father forever. It's important that we understand not only who the shepherd is, we're the sheep. We have a shepherd. That's glorious. But it wouldn't be as glorious if we didn't know who the shepherd's father was. The father of the shepherd factors in here. Because the father is so infinitely glorious. The son has all authority. And therefore can bless the sheep however he pleases. And so Jesus will say that here at the end. Verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them, that is, my sheep, out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. But that's a little ways down the road. Beloved, this, I believe, is the point of the passage. Jesus is describing his relationship to his sheep and how he saves them for himself forever. He is the good shepherd. What I want, what I want to do over the next few weeks, or at least next week or two, is to kind of slow down and and put the magnifying glass on this text. I've been trying to move fast, and it didn't last very long. Let's just slow down and look at this. I don't know how long we're going to be in this. Maybe I can do it all next week. We'll see. But let's slow it down and take a look at these truths of Jesus and how they touch on who he is more fully, to help us fully grasp and glory in the wonderful privilege we have of belonging to Jesus, the Good Shepherd. This week, however, there, there's, there's not enough time, but I do want to ask you a question before we close. What is your relationship with the Good Shepherd? What is your relationship with him? This week, as you're thinking about God, how will you think of him? This week, when you're thinking about your relationship with God, assuming that you know him, how will you think of him? And if you don't know him, it's time to start thinking about him. Perhaps you're not a follower of Christ. Perhaps you're trying to navigate life on your own, by your own wits and the impulses of your own heart. I pray that 
you won't take offense when I say to you, that's a foolish way to live. It's exactly how the world tells you to live. That's a foolish way to live. You realize, realize Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were perfect, but not independent. They were not self-sufficient. Immediately, God had to step into the garden and give them his word. Enjoy this. Be careful of that. Don't ever go there. This is for your good. They needed direction. They needed counsel. They needed someone to help them navigate life. They needed a shepherd. Surely by now you've discovered that you don't have what it takes to navigate and make sense of this life and figure it all out on your own. By his grace, God has provided for you a shepherd. He knows everything about you. He knows not only how bad you've sinned in the past, but how badly you will mess up in the future. But even so, he loves you. He cares about you. And he invites you to become one of his. Because right now, you are a sheep without a shepherd. And that doesn't have to be. On the other hand, some of you already know him and are living with some serious misconceptions about him, like I said, about the way Jesus thinks of you. This morning, I want to encourage you to begin opening yourself to the possibility that your conceptions about what Jesus thinks of you might be wrong. It might be wrong. Perhaps he's not against you after all. Even though you stumble and, and mess things up again and again. You may need to shift your thinking away from father-son or father-daughter over to shepherd and sheep. That might help you. It might help you. Because you know what? The shepherd doesn't expect a whole lot from his sheep. Praise the Lord for that. I mean, there are expectations, but you know what? He's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He's tender and patient with his sheep. Of his sheep. You know what he expects of them? He expects them to be sheep. David said in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, he knows my frame. He knows that I am but dust. His expectations are not too high. Jesus didn't choose you because he mistakenly thought you were an angel. You're not. And he knew it. He knew you from before the foundation of the world. And in his book were all the days that were ordained for you when as yet there was not one of them. Psalm 139 says. He knew you. He wanted you. He bought you. He adopted you. You're his sheep now. So stop wallowing in self-pity. And start enjoying the blessing of living an intimate relationship with the Good Shepherd. Because there's no greater comfort and security on earth than to know that the Good Shepherd claims you as his own. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know about you, but from time to time, I just got to hear it again. It is almost... Unbelievable. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you. You've not only given us commands and promises, 
But you've also revealed yourself in, in ways that are unmistakably good, and gracious, and patient, and tender, and kind. And so we praise you. Help us, Father, to see Jesus for who he is. We know he's the judge. We know he's the master. But help us also to see him as our good shepherd who loves to give, who is glorified in giving to us and us willing, receiving from his hand every good and perfect gift. Oh, Father, teach us and show us how to live before you in this way. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.